welcome to the Social Ideas Podcast, brought to you by the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation. This series looks through the lens of those striving for a better world. I'm Pam Mungrew. Dr Neil Stott and Professor Paul Tracy are the founders and co-directors of the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation at the Cambridge Judge Business School. Some years after Neil had completed his Masters in Community Enterprise, he was the Chief Executive of the Keystone Development Trust in Thetford, Norfolk. Paul, one of Neil's former lecturers, asked if he could spend some time researching organisational structures at the social enterprise. But after launching a programme supporting migrants in the community, Keystone faced a crisis, causing Paul to refocus his research to the issues of stigma and organisational identity. I began this interview by asking Paul to explain those concepts. Well, when an organisation becomes stigmatised, it is extremely negatively evaluated and is extremely negatively evaluated along one dimension. So when an individual or a group of people think of that organisation, they instantly think of this one very negative thing. And that colours out and overshadows all other perceptions that they have of it. So I could give you an example, which is uh, Jeremy Kyle and ITV. So if I was to ask you about ITV, what you might think of Jeremy Kyle, uh, not looking after guests, irresponsible journalism, even though that you may have a whole other range of opinions about that particular organisation, uh, ITV is being stigmatised for the fact that it had this show that has behaved in a very bad way and not looked after its guests appropriately. So then why is it important to understand the impact of stigma? Well, I think that stigma has a huge effect uh, internally in organisations and also externally as organisations build relationships with their stakeholders. So externally, if an organisation is stigmatised, all of a sudden, other stakeholders start to think, well, wait a minute, this organisation appears to have done something bad or be associated with something bad. Maybe we don't want to be associated with that organisation, so maybe we should be starting withholding our resources or our support. And for an organisation like a social enterprise, it's often really resource-constrained. That, that can create a crisis. But internally, and this, you know, we'll come on to talk about Keystone later, I'm sure, but, you know, internally, if, if you work for an organisation that's stigmatised, that's actually quite a traumatic experience. So a traumatic experience is walking into work every day. And you know, there's been very little research that's been done on what it's like to be part of a stigmatised organisation and more broadly to think about the internal dynamics of stigmatisation. The work that's been done so far has mostly been looking at what happens to organisations' relationships with its partners and stakeholders. But you know, what I was really interested in this study is what happens inside your members of an organisation. How does that feel? Um, what are the effects on organisational members and what can leaders and managers do to address that or make that better? What was it then about Keystone that appealed as a case study? Well, the first thing to say about Keystone is when I went in, I, I had no intention of studying organisational stigma or stigmatisation. When I went in, the idea was I wanted to study about how social entrepreneurs, how leaders manage the tensions uh, that come with trying to achieve social and commercial objectives. That was the, that was the point. But actually, when um, I got into Keystone, I realised that, well, first of all, that wasn't that interesting a topic. <laughs> That's a little bit boring. And loads of people have done that. But also, when, it, when I came in, it became apparent that um, there was this one issue that dominated everything that was happening at the organisation. And this was uh, Keystone's relationship with the migrant population. You know, Keystone existed in a town in a community where there'd been a, a big influx of mainly Eastern European, but also some from Portugal migrant workers. Um, a lot of them were very, very vulnerable. Keystone was the only organisation that stepped in to help. But in, in stepping in to help, its core stakeholder group, which was its, you know, the white working class communities in which it was embedded and where its community centres were located, 
they were very upset, they started to turn against uh, the organisation and that had huge repercussions externally and internally. And so this struck me as like a really interesting case to study. And so I moved away from this initial focus on, well, let's, let's look at the, this tension between social and, and commercial objectives and let's focus on this much more interesting thing that um, emerged just as I went inside, which was around the issues to do with stigmatisation. Neil, what is or was Keystone and how are you involved? So at the, uh, at the time, um, I was the chief executive of Keystone Development Trust. And Keystone was a charity and a charitable company. A development trust is an idea rather than an organisational form. And the idea of a development trust is to deliver social projects, social goods and opportunity within a place, a particular place, but to do so, you have to create income through commercial projects or social enterprise to enable you to be sustainable. And the key thing about development trust is you're, you're embedded in place. You can't get up and move. So it's a long-term relationship. Um, uh, some people call them community anchor organisations. So they're anchored in place. They're trying to anchor wealth and opportunity, particularly in some of the poorest places in the, in the UK. So where was this one based in particular? Keystone was based in, in, in Thetford. In Norfolk and Thetford was a very small sleepy market town until the 1950s. Post Second World War quite a lot of Polish people moved there post-war but it was still very white and very sleepy. In the mid to late 60s um, as the Greater London Council was trying to move people out of the sort of uh, blighted areas of London they were pushing people out across southeast England into new towns or new areas and it was decided to build around about 20,000-ish, possibly I can't remember the actual figure, new social housing in a huge swathe around Thetford and factories as well. So initially you had a lot of work, a lot of people moved, a bit of a shock for the people, frankly, because there was tensions then between migrants and, and people who had been in Norfolk all their lives. As time went by, those factories became less and less uh, relevant because work move to other places in the world so people started losing jobs and it became separate became really quite a poor poor place so you had a white community who were dislocated from their roots moved into a semi-rural area and then generation of generation of, of poverty and disadvantage and keystone was set up to try and help tackle some of those issues how did you go about tackling those issues well we, we were set up in 2003 and my mission at the time was to make it sustainable in th within three years, which sounds an easy thing to do, but in my long experience of this, what tends to happen is with government schemes, we had government money, is that people say, this is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to be sustainable. This is our exit strategy. What happens is that people take the money, spend the money, often do good things, when the money finishes, they say, oh dear, no exits, let's close down and go away and wait for the next money. So we were determined not to do that. So our strategy was emerged fairly quickly, but one, we will deliver a range of social projects that meet social need. Community centres, youth work, children's work, community work. Two, we will deliver a range of small businesses, social enterprises, that meet people's needs for training and employment. We will not sweat them because the sort of businesses we can build like bike cycling, you know, furniture cycling, there's only so much profit you can make really from selling second-hand bikes to poor people. And then we built a commercial portfolio of property 
which we could earn significant monies from to be able to cross-subsidise a lot of the work. This is the plan. And to an extent it worked. I mean, you know, by 2007, before Paul arrived, we hit around about 85% sustainability on a turnover of about a million. The credit crunch came along and various bad things happened, but we managed to you know, survive by shrinking and, and rethinking. But the premise is commercial, social enterprise, cross-subsidising the work we're doing with the local community. So what was it then that led to this sort of internal and external crisis in your association <coughs> with migrants in the area? So when I arrived in 2003, um, one thing I noticed straight away was the number of Portuguese people in the town. I was particularly attracted by the Portuguese restaurant, which served amazing fish <laughs> stews. One thing about the Portuguese community was there's quite a few were from Brazil and various African countries where Portuguese was the, the main language. So, you know, to put it bluntly, people were of a different colour. And in Norfolk, Norfolk is pretty damn white. Uh, and this was causing a few tensions in the town. And in my history in public service, I used to run race quality services, I used to run racial harassment investigation services. So I had a history of working with uh, different groups and I thought, well, we need to do something. But I'm not a public authority, so I can't have the same sort of role. What can we do? So what we decided to do was support incoming migrants by training and employing other migrants with appropriate language skills to help them settle in, help them to engage with other institutions, be it work and get housing, or knowing where to put the bins out or where the children go to school, you know, we will help in that way. So that's how META, the project, which is Mobile Europeans Taking Action, was, was born. It's a very simple service. At the risk of sounding naive, why then was it so problematic? Because it was, it was migrants helping other migrants. It <coughs> surely couldn't have been um, too difficult. Well, you have to think about the town, which is predominantly white, people coming in who were different, and then quite quickly, then you had, if memory serves, you had Polish, and then Lithuanian, etc. In, in reasonably large numbers, because the, the people coming in were doing the jobs that other people didn't want. So basically, they're doing the picking, packing, and plucking. They're doing those jobs that's, that many people didn't want to do, partly because you had to get up too early in the morning, or you're doing horrible jobs in, 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 in you know, chicken factories or whatever. So, you know, the companies, like uh, supply chain companies, including Tesco, are going out to Poland, recruiting people to come and work. It's, it's a myth that these people just, just turned up. They were actively recruited by the big companies. You know, be it the, the chicken pluckers or the Tesco's or the carrot, you know, or, or uh, vegetables. So they were actively recruited. But there was the tensions were starting to emerge. I was hearing things, you know, and people were saying unpleasant things. And, you know, I was not having any of that, frankly. Um, so we decided to set a project. There was, I remember this one time, um, this is moving forward to when I was inside Keystone. There's this English middle-aged guy comes up to me. Because uh, I've, I've got my Keystone badge on, so I'm a Keystone community worker as far as he's concerned. And um, he says, oh, I've got to tell you have, you, heard have you heard about the Poles eating the swans? <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? He said, oh yeah, all the Polish people in, in the town, uh, they're going down the river, they're killing the swans, they're taking home and they're eating them. I said, that's terrible. I went to uh, see Robin, who was the, the manager of Meta. I said, Robin, have you heard what's happening? All these Polish people, they're going 
going down the river, the killing swans, they're taking them home to eat them. What, what are we going to do? She sort of rolled her eyes. <laughs> so, uh, heard the stories about 50 times before. You know, we've, we've talked to the police about it. There's no evidence of any Polish people or anyone else uh, eating any swans in the town. Um, and it's just a, a story. And it turns out, of course, this is a story that is told in lots of different uh, towns and cities across the country in different versions of it as well. So there's a, an equivalent the story about the carp. And, yeah, the biggie. And, yeah. Um, Taking all the carp from the rivers. Uh, there's a lot of tension. I mean, street uh, drinking. Street, that's right. Yeah. The street drinking was a very interesting one. Yeah. So the, again, in, into Keystone, all these people, these um, local people used to come and, and complain to Neil about these teenage uh, drinkers from Eastern Europe, and they're causing this antisocial behaviour. It's terrible. We've got to do something about it. And so Neil put a, a team together with local police, and they went round. I think it was one weekend, Friday, Saturday evening try and find all these uh, Eastern European boozers. And they did find some boozers, but it was basically <laughs> English <laughs> kids. <laughs> it wasn't many Eastern Europeans there. So. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, apart from, so Meta was providing a service, so you'd come in and, you'd, you know, you'd, you'd be able to speak to someone in your own language to work out how to get a driving license or whatever. We moved on to training, so we provided different like, forklift training, etc. But what we also did was myth bust. We spent a lot of time myth busting. So come on, someone come with a swan story yeah. or a carp story, we, we'd then spend time and effort breaking that myth. We, we also did a lot of um, integration work in the sense of celebrating cultures. So, um, you know, we did a Portuguese uh, version of uh, Cinderella, which, you know, for local schools. We produced a, a comic book on, which featured, um, you know, local English kids and, and Portuguese kids telling their story. So any trick we could to try and get people engaged, we did a, a Portuguese fado, which was interesting. It's a, I didn't realise how long they are. What is it? It's a special, I think it's the right word, but it's a special celebratory uh, musical experience, which tends to go on for a very long time. <laughs> but, uh, so we, we did a lot of things like that to try and bring people together. So the efforts that you, were, um, or a lot of your efforts, were going into finding different ways of appeasing different communities. Not appeasing. Helping them? Um, well, helping a diverse number of communities come together in terms of settling and finding ways for people to actually have contact with each other in normal situations, the school gate, etc., etc. But there were forces working against us at the time. I mean, apart from this rejection of the other, there, at the time there's a rising in the press about migration and how bad it was and people taking our jobs which people listened to. And it all culminated, or the first round culminated in 2004 during the Euro World Cups when Portugal played England. And I went to the police station because I used to manage community safety and I used to manage police officers once upon a time. And I said to them, you have worked this out, haven't you? You, you have thought this through. It'll be fine. So what ended up was a crowd of 300 people, not necessarily from Thetford, besieging the Portuguese pub with one of my staff inside it, and there was a riot. And every police officer in the, in the surrounding counties had to be brought in to, to quell this riot. So that just showed you the level of, of what was, was happening you know, within the communities at the time. Not just in Thetford, it was, it was wider than that. Bearing in mind that the interesting thing was that Meta was round about 3, 4, 5% of our work and about 99% of the publicity at the time. People come to me and say, you're spending all your money on the migrants. I said, A, we're not. Here are the figures. We're spending it on you and your neighbourhoods. And B, these people are European citizens and they're citizens of this country and town now. They have a right 
and we have a duty. When did it become an, an issue within your organisation? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, I think it was an issue all along, especially at the sharp end. So as Paul, Paul said and Paul experienced, so working in the community centres that we had in, in the particular states, the team who often were from those states were rubbing up against this day and day on comments, uh, criticism of different people and communities. And even though we had trained them, uh, and even though we expected certain behaviours, things started to bubble up from there. How did you interpret what you were seeing then? My interpretation of what was going on is that the, the British employees at Keystone were experiencing a crisis of identification um, in the sense that obviously they felt loyalty to Keystone and the organisation that they were working for and promoting the values of Keystone. But at the same time, you know, when they go home amongst their family and in their communities, often they're living in areas where people are expressing the types of attitudes and values towards migration and, and migrants that Keystone set up to fight against, if you like. So there's this, this tension that they experienced at, at work and amongst their home lives. And this was something that some of them found difficult to deal with, I think. And they were getting these two very different messages about migration and Keystone and what this was all about. Neil, how did you navigate those difficulties then? I mean, you can't just go and tell somebody you will behave like this both at home and at work. So I think a lot of this, this is about setting, setting boundaries. When I used to manage race equality services and harassment services at Cambridge City Council, on the racial harassment services, it was basically, I don't care what you think, but you will not speak or behave in certain ways. This is the boundary. And if you do, there'll be consequences. On the race equality work, it's more, I do care what you think, and let's, let's talk about it. Let's try and work this out. Let's, you know, so it's a longer process. So as a manager of an organisation, one has to take both approaches. So there were boundaries of behaviours. There was boundaries of what people could and couldn't do, which I would enforce. But also there was trying to talk to people, you know, if, if they raised it as an issue, we would, we, we would try and talk it over. But I was very clear that the charity was there to serve the whole community. The charity was there to tackle social justice issues. And in my opinion, and in the opinion of the board who supported me, this was a key social justice issue for the town. And if we didn't do something, no one hell else would do it. Were there any positives then that came from this? Well, yeah, I mean, not everyone behaved in, in bad ways. I mean, positives in terms of the experience of the people coming to our services, the migrant workers, who got jobs and settled in and, and navigated the, the bureaucracy, which is sometimes not terribly helpful. The bureaucracy tended to gr gravitate to us. So if national insurance came in every month and you know, the police came in, different services came in to have the conversations which we facilitated. So lots of good things happened. And... Also, a lot of local people did realise that migration in the town actually was doing you know, quite a lot of good in the town. It was making it a lot more vibrant, uh, mm. there was money, but obviously one had to, to manage it more carefully than had actually happened. In, so, in some ways, I think it was the whole process was quite a positive experience for the organisation because mm. I think in many ways it made Keystone and the members of Keystone really reflect what are we actually about? What are we fundamentally about as an organisation? Because that's in many ways a more difficult question to answer for an organisation like Keystone which does so many different things on the for-profit and the non-profit side. You know, so what was really interesting when I was at Keystone is that people in different parts of the organisation might have different conceptions of what Keystone was fundamentally about, what it was supposed to be doing. And that's because 
you know, the projects were very disparate and the businesses were quite disparate. And I think what this, going through this process, what it made Keystone do was to reflect really deeply about what are we fundamentally about? What do we stand for? And as they went through this process and came out the other end, it was super, super clear that as Neil said, we are fundamentally a social justice organisation and we exist to support people in the community, vulnerable people in the community, whoever they may be, and to, to help them. And so that became super, super clear as this process mm. unfolded. So a lot of this complexity around the different activities and what Keystone was fundamentally about, that was kind of resolved through this. Two things, I mean, Paul may have mentioned it, the perverse thing that stigma brought was even though we were stigmatised locally, mm. at a regional level and a national level, we were celebrated after a while, mm. which brought in new resources. So that's number one. And number two, some learning that came out later from subsequent research is that what we were doing, I didn't know, I didn't think of this at the time, is what organisations like it are doing in these sort of places. So when people think of community, they think of a fixed thing. But actually, as you well know, neighbourhood communities are very, often very, very diverse, uh, very contested, lots of people got their own ideas how things, things are to be done. So these sort of organisations have to negotiate solidarities constantly. So what's to be done, what's not to be done, what we should do, that has to be negotiated on a constant basis. That's what Keystone was doing in retrospect. Paul, with the research that you ended up doing, how has that influenced the work that you continue to do within that area now? Well, I suppose the, the, the beginnings of the Centre for Social Innovation, uh, they all happened during this, this research project because, um, you know, as I was embedded in Keystone for that nine-month period, Neil and I would obviously talk a lot, not just about what was going on at Keystone, but about different issues to do with social enterprise and social entrepreneurship more broadly. And we came to think that actually, you know, a lot of the, the stuff that was being written about social enterprise at that time didn't necessarily reflect the reality of what social entrepreneurs were experiencing, what social enterprises were experiencing. So, you know, people like Neil felt a disconnect between um, the rhetoric around social enterprise and social innovation and the reality of what it was like on, on, on the ground. And so that led us to think that maybe there was an opportunity uh, to do something really interesting in the university, inside the business school, to support social entrepreneurship and social innovation. Around the same time, there was a, a competition, a government competition for a, a social enterprise incubator fund. And uh, Neil was part of a coalition of actors that pulled together that application, together with Alia, a charity in, in Cambridge, Keystone Foundation East, and the business school was also a partner as well. And so that bid was successful, and that created the social enterprise incubator, became what is now Cambridge Social Venture. So all these discussions about what a Centre for Social Innovation might look like happened at that time. And if I hadn't have been there, we wouldn't have had those discussions. And I think the impetus to create the centre would not have happened. It wasn't purely about social enterprise. I mean, I think the discussion goes from memory is that social enterprise, as it was being touted, there were problems with the idea. You know, it didn't fit with the history and practice of what a lot of people were doing. Um, and, but number two is, yes, it's great that social enterprises or community enterprises, whatever you want to call it, you know, there are lots of them. But most of them are micro-businesses. Most of them are startups. A few will grow to, to the scale that people had hoped at the time. And we, we came to the conclusion, after much discussion, that if you want to change the world and tackle the big issues that face the world, social enterprise is only one of a number of solutions. One has to engage with the corporates, and one has to engage with the public sector, which is often forgotten. So the, the centre was set up not as a centre for social entrepreneurship, it was a centre for social innovation 
for that reason, that we wanted a wider conversation. And I think that's still one of the things that distinguishes the yeah. Centre for Social Innovation from other university-based centres around these issues, that we explicitly are interested in the three sectors and the intersection between them. We're not just a centre for social entrepreneurship. I think that is really important. That was Professor Paul Tracy and Dr Neil Stott. You can find out more about the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation by searching for us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn and YouTube.